It is a real honor to be here today um, to speak to you, to bring a talk, to bring a subject that is really, I believe, critical to the church at this juncture as many others. And in doing so, I want to start with a story that uh, many of you have probably heard, but I think lays the foundation for, um, for myself and for the subject. And it's a story of a pastor who really cared for his congregation, was kind of the pastor in his community. And in keeping his ear to the ground, he heard that many of them were wrestling with questions around sexuality as culture was shifting and, and not really sure how to wrestle with it. And he sat down in his prayer time and he said, God, I'm realizing that I am not sure that I can speak on this subject in saying, thus saith the Lord. I'm not sure that I know what your word would be in the area of sexuality. So I'll make a commitment with you, God. Give me some time to really wrestle with the subject, to dig in and read your word and read what others have to say before you ask me to speak directly to it. And so being a man of his word, he spent the next nine months digging into scripture. He went down to the local theological library and dug through the stacks and pulled out what everybody had been saying about it and really prayed over it and wrestled with it until one morning in his devotions, he told God, I think I am ready to speak. I've, I've dug through it, and, and I believe that with some authority I can say, thus saith the Lord on this subject. So when you are ready, go ahead and call, and I will speak. God being who he is, a little bit later that day, the phone rang, and one of the ladies from uh, the Bible study said, Pastor, we were wondering if you would come and speak in our ladies' Bible study. He said, oh, I've, I've heard some really good things about it. I would be honored to speak. Um, she said, yeah, we've we've been getting a lot of questions raised that we're not sure we can answer, and we'd, just, we'd like the pastor to come and speak for us. He said, well, can I ask on what subject? And she hemmed and hawed a bit and said on the subject of sexuality. And the pastor swallowed hard, and remembering his commitment that morning, he said, I would be honored to. And they scheduled the time, and he began to prepare. And the morning of the Bible study, he's walking out the door, walks over and gives his wife a kiss, um, and says, I'm, I'm going to be speaking at one of the ladies' Bible studies this morning. And she says, oh, yeah, I heard about that. Um, they're, they're looking forward to it. I'm, I didn't ask, what are you speaking on? And as he's walking out the door, he realized that the entire nine-month journey he has not shared with his wife, has not talked with her about what he's been studying and what God's been doing in his life. So in the moment of kind of frustration and, and um, hesitation, he closes the door as he's saying, uh, deep-sea fishing. She thought, deep sea fishing to a lady's Bible study? Okay, whatever. Later that day, she's in the grocery store, and some lady came up to her and said, you, aren't you the pastor's wife? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm married to the pastor. Oh, what a blessed woman you are. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, no, you don't understand. He spoke at our Bible study this morning. Oh, yeah, I heard he was doing that. Oh, such wisdom, such tenderness, what it must be like to be married to such a, a, oh, such a man. You are such a blessed wife. And she says, yeah, um, that's really strange. See, he's only ever done it twice. And <laughs> the first time he was young and inexperienced, couldn't get his equipment to work right. And the second time he dug in with gusto and things got a little bit rough and he got sick to his stomach and swore he'd never do it again. And I love that story for a number of reasons. One is I think it reflects, first it reflects a bit of my story and, and, and um, being raised up in a very conservative church 
And in a family where it was okay to talk about sex, we just didn't. And it wasn't a, a subject that you addressed. And it wasn't something that the church talked about. And so for us as leaders to be able to say, thus saith the Lord on this subject, I, I was never really sure how to do that until God kind of put me in the situation where I had to dig in and learn what he had to say about it. And, and I think it also reflects the uncomfortableness that we have within the church in wrestling with the subject. But I also think it reflects part of where we're at in our culture, that the church is being forced to deal with this subject that we should have been dealing with and taking the lead in for a very long time. And so what I want to challenge you with this morning is just kind of five different ways that I believe is important for us as leaders in the church to sort through um, things to put up in front that we can become leaders in the church of sexual integrity, that who we are is something that we can say, follow in my footsteps and you'll be following after Christ. And I think the first one of those is that of focusing on the vision. For much of the church history, I think we have a prominent message. It's not been the only message through history, but the prominent message has been one of don't, where we are often seen as the scolding parent, the parent who shakes the finger and says, don't do this, don't do that, that it's all about the nose on sexuality, that we don't even talk about it, we don't address it, and it's not okay to desire it. It's not okay, as Calvin said, to even take pleasure in it. Um, I think one of the um, classic examples for me, and please understand, I, I really hold our church fathers in great esteem, but I read um, St. Augustine who said uh, that for many, total abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. And my translation of that is repression is easier than self-discipline. And I think many times that's the message that we've pulled away is that it's easier just to repress it. It's easier to shut it down. It's either easier to deny it than it is to discipline it and to let it grow into the beautiful thing that God has created it to be. And when we teach a message of no and don't, I don't think we allow people and draw them into what is beautiful, what is good, what is this precious gift that he's given. So I do believe that the first task is that of creating the vision. And let me give you an example that I'd like for you to try. Do not, do not think about a pink elephant. Don't think about the big pink floppy ears. Don't think about a pink rope-like tail or this big solid pink side. Don't think about the big pink trunk. What's going on in your mind? And, and how do we not think, how do we not think about a pink elephant when, when we're saying don't think about a pink elephant? I was doing this and I think it was here in class and a little girl down front says, purple alligator, purple alligator, purple alligator. And that's really how we go about getting rid of it as we begin to replace it. But what if rather than replacing it with something else that's fake, what if we began to think about a gray elephant, an African elephant, and, and think about it with me, walking across the grassland. And you can see the beauty of the creature and the, the gray and all of the sketchings on its side. And, and you can almost smell the, the grass and the dust and you can almost feel the thud of its feet as it walks and the rustle of the grass and you can hear the flapping of its ears and its breath and maybe there's a little one that's walking behind it and the more we get that in mind 
the more we can envision that gray elephant. Where's the pink elephant? It's like it just kind of falls away. And I think that's part of the challenge for us is to begin to focus on what the vision is. What are we going for? I mean, Scripture speaks of that often in talking about well, whatsoever things are pure and, and noble and right and true and lovely and admirable. Think of these things. It challenges us to set our affection on godly things and let the things of earth just kind of fall away. So I believe our first task in sexual integrity and in leading our church into healthy sexuality is to really know what the vision is. What are we challenging people to move toward? And if we can keep that crystal clear, if that becomes a gray elephant that is really tangible, the other things that would normally distract us get so much easier to not pay attention to. So what, what constitutes a healthy vision for sexuality? I think the first one is, is central core, just recognizing that sex is sacred. It is something that is created by God. It's something that's given by God. That means it is good, it is rich, it is enjoyable. Whether we look at how he created our bodies and the physiology of it, whether we look at how it glues couples together and the, just the physiology of the, the chemicals involved in it, or when we look at the research and shows what happens in couples when they come together, whether we look at how it's a reflection of the holy and, and the coming together of Christ and his church, all of those things point to us that, no, this is really good. This is something that is truly sacred. It's set aside for a very specific purpose, and that purpose is good. And many times I think, while we don't specifically teach it in the church, the message that people walk away is sex is not good. As one of my friends said, I learned in church that sex is dirty, save it for the one you love. And he said, I wasn't sure what to do with that. You know, how, how, do, how do I, when I get into marriage and I've spent all my life repressing it, how do I take something that's not okay and grow it into something beautiful? That, nobody taught me how to do that. And I think we start by teaching people that this is rich, this is good, it's designed by God. It's holy, it's sacred. We begin to lay a foundation that is actually healthy. I think another part of the vision is that what is the focus for, what is the, the drive, what is the goal for sexuality? And that is one of oneness. So I think part of it is focusing on the oneness for a healthy sexuality. M much of our culture says it's about parts, it's about techniques, it's about numbers, it's about, it's about the orgasm. And what if that wasn't God's design? What if in his design, he created it as an image to teach us about him and about his relationship with us and his desire for us and the way he longs to connect with us? Our God is a God who really, he is one. That is part of his nature. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. As he's walking to the cross, he says, I'd rather not drink of this cup, but I choose to. And John 17 records his prayer and he says, Father, I don't do this for these 12 around me, just for them. I do it for all those who believe in my message through them, that they may be one. Father, even as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us, may they be one. That is the heart of God. And our sexuality is able to reflect that oneness in a way that nothing else does. And what if we were recognizing that sex is is predominantly about reflecting the oneness, about coming together as husband and wife in a way that 
no other time do we reflect something of the oneness of God where something totally distinct and separate comes together as one. And if our focus is on oneness, then a lot of the things that the world would want to distract us with begin to just fall away. If it's about becoming one with you, if it's about enjoying that oneness, not just getting to a physiological goal, not just checking something off, not just getting a need met, but that need is designed to draw me into oneness. Now I begin to craft a vision that's really worth striving toward. I also think that part of the vision is keeping it incarnate. To a theological group, this is easy, but if I say to you, um, Christ was really probably the best of men, but he wasn't God, what would you say? That is a heretical statement. It's not acceptable. If I said to you that he was fully God, but he really wasn't a man, again, that's a heretical statement. We cannot remove either the, the, the humanness of Christ, nor can we remove the divinity of Christ and still have him Christ. Similarly, if, if our sexuality is designed to be a reflection of who he is, and, and we are designed to be a reflection of who he is, let us make man in our own image, then I believe our sexuality is designed to reflect the incarnate. And we have a world that stands over on this side and says, sex is just about the physical act. There are no consequences to it. You can do it with anybody in any way. There are no boundaries because it is purely a physical act. It becomes a sport. It becomes about how big of a rush can you, can you achieve and totally devoid of the sacredness of the act, totally devoid of the spirit of the act. And when it's disincarnate, it does damage every time. That's the nature of how it works. But similarly, I think many times throughout history, the church has done the opposite error in saying it is just about the spirit of the act. Now, well, Song of Solomon really isn't about a husband and wife coming together in a sexual way. It is just an allegory of Christ and the church and how much God loves us. Well, it very much is about the spirit of the act, but it's also a story about the physical of the act. As they celebrate and they take great delight in each other's bodies and they take great delight in coming together and God says to them, drink deeply, enjoy this, have fun with it. And it's only when we bring both the spirit of the act and the physical of the act together that we can truly begin to celebrate the vision that God has given us and the gift that he has given for us in our sexuality. In any time, even in our marriage, when we rip one or, or the other out of it, we lose something. When we come to our spouse and we say, well, it's just about the spirit of the act, and if I'm not physically into it, it's okay. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. Something is missing in the, the connection. Similarly, if we come to it and it's just about my need and about my desire and about my body, then something is ripped out of it. When we open up our hearts and our bodies to each other, when we make it about the spirit of the act and reflecting who God is and about the physical of the act and the pleasure and the joy of our bodies just lighting up with each other, that's a vision that I believe is worth calling the church to and helping them to draw and move toward. I think another way that we fight for that vision is in respecting both the masculine and the feminine. 
And too many times throughout history, we rob one or the other, that we tear down something about the masculine or we tear down something about the feminine. And God has designed for both of those and their uniquenesses and the differences to come together. And throughout scripture, as you know, he talks about the nature of himself reflected in both. And I believe if we're going to lead our churches into a healthy sexuality, and if we are going to be people that, are, that have sexual integrity and are sexually healthy, we will honor both the masculine and the feminine. And we could spend actually several hours right here, but let me give just one example that, um, I'll try not to get on too much of a soapbox, but too many times I read good Christian writers talk about man's need for sex, and it just infuriates me. As a sexologist, I can tell you we have spent millions of dollars in our culture trying to prove that men need sex. We have tried. You know, I'd love nothing more than to walk into my wife and say, see, hon, we finally proved it. <laughs> we have to. Every 36 to 72 hours, or I'm going to die early, you know? <laughs> something's going to dry up and fall off. Something's going to explode. Something bad is going to happen. But we haven't been able to prove it. And I, and I think that's important because our God comes to us and he says, no, this is a gift. And when we began to teach that it is a need that you have to fulfill and you have to fulfill your spouse's need, I am so saddened by the message that that gives. I am created and called to be a holy warrior of my Lord and God. And he gives me the power, and he gives me the energy, and he gives me the gifts, and he gives me the weapons to do that. And then somebody comes and says, you are a holy warrior of God except in one area. In the area of your sexuality, you cannot control that. It is need-driven. You have to do based on your needs. Really? It's that much of a need that I cannot bring that part of my flesh under God's control? How disrespectful to me as a warrior of God. How disrespectful to me as a man that you're saying something that something that's physical in me has to control me. How dare you say that to my wife? That now she becomes just an object to fulfill my physiological need that I cannot control. How disrespectful of her. How disrespectful of the feminine. And now she can't come to me giving herself to me out of love and out of joy and out of beauty and out of desire. She comes because she has to, because if she doesn't, something's going to dry up and fall off. I'm going to go get that need met someplace else because it's a need that I cannot control. And that is so disrespectful. And it's a message that's given over and over in the church. And I think, oh, how sad. What if in our vision we presented something that is truly rich and holy? that God has given us our desires, that he's given us our needs, both as husbands and wives, to draw us together and to teach us about him and teach us about what it takes to come together. And when we respect both the masculine and the feminine in a really true God-honoring way, I think our sexuality becomes far richer and we move towards something that truly is honoring in ourselves and each other. Now, if the first step is about envisioning and teaching that vision, that doesn't mean that there aren't boundaries. Because the second thing I think that is important to us in, in creating healthy individuality and healthy churches is protecting the boundaries. 
Anything that God set apart as sacred, he put lots of boundaries around it. You have to be a, a friend of the nation in order to get into one gate. You have to be um, there for worship in order to get into another gate. And then you have to be an Israelite. And then you have to be a male. And then you have to be um, a Levite. And then you have to be in service. And then you go through all the ritual cleansing before you go into that final gate into the most holy place. There are boundaries around things that are sacred to God. And the church errs any time we do not hold the boundaries that God has given to us. Similarly, the church errs any time we do not, or any time we present boundaries that God does not give. Because many times culture looks and says, well, they just shifted their position on that. They are not principle-driven. They are not scripture-driven. And so if I wait long enough, they're going to shift their principle on what I want to do. Because it's about culture leading. It's not about theology leading. And scripture does give us some very clear boundaries. Marriage should be honored by all. Marriage should be seen as precious, as costly, as, as pure, as something that is really treasured. And he says, in the marriage bed kept pure, without taint. Or I love, I love the, the translation that looks at it, without anything that would rob it of vim or vigor, without anything that would rob it of life or force that we are to keep it precious, keep it protected. It says, for God will judge the adulterer, one of the top ten lists, don't do that, and the sexually immoral. Anybody who steps outside of the boundaries of marriage with it, God will judge because we need to protect that vision. We need to keep it pure. And anytime we don't protect those boundaries, damage happens. Or do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the porneos, nor idolaters, nor adultery, moikos, nor male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, make sure you're keeping it pure. And I, I love there that it's, it, again, he reflects the adultery and the, the um, sexual immorality. But right in the middle of this list of sexual sins, he lists idolatry, which means... Uh, means adultery, um, intimidating to talk Greek to a group like this, but, um, but also means image worshiper. And I wonder sometimes, did Paul know what he was doing in putting image worshiper right in the list of sexual sins? Was he speaking to more than just bowing down to a carved idol? Because we live in a culture that is filled with image worshipers around sexuality. And, and Paul says, no, that's, that's not what you keep your vision and your focus on. And I think a sexually healthy church stands up and says, that is not okay. It is outside the boundaries of God, where we stand up to each other and we say, that is not okay. And I think the third thing that we do is keep the church and ourselves focused on discipline. Because once I have a vision, and I know there are boundaries to it, and I'm not to step out of those boundaries, it takes discipline for me to keep within those boundaries. Many times clients sit in my office and they, I don't want to work that hard. Yeah, neither do I. I have a bumper sticker in my office that says discipline, and it's not good. Discipline is, you know, stinks. It's, I, I, it is not one of my favorite things. I don't like discipline. I don't like discipleship. I just don't. It's too hard. I'm in it 
for the end result. I'm in it for where it's taking me. I'm in it because I know that that life of discipleship is going to transform me into something that is well worth the fight. And our sexuality is one of those areas that we have to keep disciplined. We have to keep focusing on. Discipline is about practice, practice, practice. It's about keeping that part of me moving towards the vision that God has given. You must abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you must know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not letting it run free like the Gentiles do who don't know God but keeping it disciplined, always keeping it focused. So for me, I believe for the non-marrieds, that means not repressing it, not locking it down, not ignoring it, but learning how to discipline it. Believe it or not, for those of you that are single, it takes more discipline in our sexuality in marriage than it does before marriage. Being single is when we begin the process of learning how to discipline our sexuality, how to not lock it down, how to not give it free reign, but how to appreciate the drives and the desires that God has given and learn to discipline them. For husbands, it's taking the drive that God gave many of us and turning it only to our wives. But what would happen if God took his intense drive and desire for you and he turned it to you, totally unfiltered. If God took all of his passion for you and he focused it in on you, it would consume us. And many times wives look and say, he gives me that look and I think I'm going to be consumed. And I don't think that's what God is calling us to do as husbands. We turn it to our wives, but we do so in a way that deeply cherishes her, that honors her the way Christ does us. And ladies, for many of us as men, that is a really difficult discipline to do. For our wives, it's about learning to be open as unto Christ. Learning to not just go through the steps, not just to meet a need, but to truly open up ourselves. And for many wives, that is just as difficult of a task as it is for the husbands. And our research says in about 20% of marriages, that's flipped. That she has to work on disciplining it to be only towards him. And he has to work on disciplining himself to truly be open to his wife. To allow that time of connection. So I think a big part of it is really working on making sure that we stay disciplined in it. That we fight always to keep on that path. That we don't let something else distract us from it. If we look, for example, at desire for females, what we know is that about three to five years into most marriages, a wife tips into what we would call a typical female sexuality. And in a typical female sexuality, they haven't thought about sex maybe all day, maybe all week. That's just not at the forefront of their mind. And many men go, seriously? (laughs) You can go more than an hour without that popping into your mind. And she does. Not that she doesn't care deeply. It's just that's not the focal point of her mind. It's not what's it's showing up. And so for the husband to come in and say, so you look really cute. It's been a couple of days. Can we be together? And she's like, oh, oh, yeah. Um, wow, haven't thought about that in a few days. Um, 
if I get the laundry done and I get the kids put down and I can get the dishes put away, that, then I think, you know, that would be kind of nice. And by this point, he's all hurt and wounded that she wasn't thinking about it all day long and is stomping down the hall. And she comes out of, that would be nice, and looks over and goes, but not with that, you know, <laughs> not with you acting that way. And I think part of the discipline, even in those times that she says, I'm not sure I'm really open to it, is to say, what if you chose out of discipline to move forward? Not because he needs it, but because your marriage, it's good for it, it's rich, it's part of, God says, owed, duty. It is a part of what is valuable and important in our marital relationship. And so many times I'll look at wives and say, do you, do you have devotions daily? Yeah. Are there ever days that you get up and you think, I don't have the time or the energy for devotions today? <laughs> yeah. What happens when you choose to out of discipline? What happens when you choose to because that's who you are? Well, five to ten minutes into it, God shows up. And it's rich. And it's good. And, and I'm glad that I'm connecting with God. That's part of the discipline of it. And many times, if we as husbands and wives do the act that we need to in disciplining our sexuality and moving forward towards the vision that God has given us, God shows up. Our bodies show up. What's rich in what he's given to us begins to happen, begins to occur. And I think it's so cool in how that, that begins to play out. If we step back and just allow ourselves to do the discipline work. It doesn't work when I demand my spouse be who I want them to be. It works when I demand that I be who God's called me to be. And that is my discipline task. I think the fourth thing that we need to do as individuals, as leaders in the church, and in leading our church is to develop intentional, accountable relationships. Intentional, accountable relationships. So Jim comes in and sits down in my office and he says, yeah, this week was kind of rough. I didn't maintain sexual purity this week. I didn't maintain my integrity. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. Do you know what was going on? I do. So what did Bob say? Bob's his accountability partner. Well, that's the thing. I haven't talked to Bob in probably three weeks. That's stupid. Do you really think you are stronger than sin? Do you really think you are more powerful than your enemy, both within and without? Seriously? Your enemy is older than you, wiser than you, craftier than you, way stronger than you. To think for a moment that you can go up against him and win is the height of arrogance, the, the pride that comes into that. That's just stupid. Of course you felt. You believed you could handle sin on your own. You cannot. How many times do you have to learn that lesson? You need to be in an intentional, accountable relationship where I sit down across the table from Bob and I look at him and say, Bob, I need you to ask me some questions. I need you to ask me some very specific questions on a regular basis. And you have to decide what that intentional question is. For me, it's, is anybody's face getting stuck in your mind? Okay? I can cruise through. My clients are not an issue. They're God's precious little lambs. But there are plenty of people that come across my path. Maybe a student comes across my path. And... We sit across the table, and Bob looks at me, and he says, so is, 
Does anybody's face getting stuck in your mind? Hmm. Yeah. Susie. Susie's face is getting stuck in my mind. And he says, well, tell me about it. Well, I'm wondering if she's getting her paper done. I'm wondering how she's doing on the exam. I'm wondering, I'm not thinking about that of any of the other 40 students in the class. What's up with that? And he says, well, tell me a bit about her. And what we've learned is it's always the same person. Because I don't really know the student. But I know that something has captured my heart and I'm thinking more about them. So long before it ever becomes a sexual thing, long before there's ever anything that's unsafe, Bob is focusing in on that relationship. And as we unpack it and we laugh about it and he talks about what he's learned about the core of who I am and what draws me, all of a sudden the power is gone from it. And if it's not, the next time we meet, he's like, what's up with that? What's going on here? What do we need to do? And it becomes an accountable relationship where he holds me to a life of purity, where he holds me to a life of integrity, where there are teeth in that relationship. So it's intentional, it's accountable, and then it's a relationship. We meet regularly, and if we don't, there's too much space for the enemy to do his work. I tell my guys that there is no such thing as a spiritual ramble. In the story, Rambo goes up against the, the Soviet army all by himself and wins. I mean, he has to stitch himself up a little bit, but he wins. And we have too many spiritual leaders, too many church leaders who believe that they are spiritual Rambos. And the reality of it is, your enemy is way too big, way too crafty, way too strong. And this is an arena, he will take you out. He will. And all you have to do is take a look at the news on a regular basis to see how he uses this arena to take out those that are doing mighty works of God and totally trashing the message. And he takes great delight in it. And that happens the moment you isolate yourself. Intentional, accountable relationships. Do not believe you can go up against the enemy like Rambo on your own and begin to win. No one survives this battle alone. That's why he gave us the church. And I think most of us need at least a squadron of guys around us, a squadron of women around us that we really get intentionally transparent and honest with. Some of us need an entire brigade. And if that's what you need, do it. One of the guys I'm working with, he has 15 men he calls daily. He says, because that's the only way I keep myself pure. And I think that is amazing that he checks in with those guys and he says, the day I slip is the day I didn't call them all. The day they didn't say, how are you doing? Are you following God's word in your life? And I think finally, we have to remember grace. We can talk about a vision for what sexuality is. We can talk about the boundaries. We can talk about the importance of discipline and of doing it in church and community. But the reality of it is our enemy is huge and crafty and this is an arena that he takes out pretty much, I believe, every one of us at some point in time. And one of the things that I see in my office is shame is so entrapping. Shame shuts us down. Shame prevents us from speaking the truth. And, and I love when I watch my clients grow to the point that they can say, such was who I am. That is a part of my story, but it no longer controls me. It's just a part of my story that God has redeemed. And they can stand up and without shame, 
They can speak, this is who I am. This is what God's done in my life. It happened this Sunday in our church. As somebody stood up and said, the enemy had done such great brokenness in my sexuality and God redeemed it. And I can tell you my story. Wishing it wasn't my story, but no longer having any shame. And there's a sense to where that transparency, where that honesty, where that integrity allows us to grow and lead people into that integrity and lead people into something that truly is Christ-reflective. But that takes us reminding people of God's grace. That God's grace is not too big to redeem anything. And I love story after story in Scripture where the person who's, who's brought before him and thrown at his feet, this is the... This is the person who made the law that says she is to be stoned. And they say, what are you going to do with it? They, they didn't realize the irony here. You're the one that made the law. What are you going to do? And he looks and he says, I don't condemn you. Just stop hurting yourself. Where in the genealogy of Christ, he identifies a prostitute. He identifies incest. He identifies adultery. And I think that is so fascinating that he could have picked lots of really honorable women, and he picks those three, and he lifts them up. And I think it's his way of saying, not only can I forgive your sin, not only can I heal it, but I can make it part of my story. The redemption of a God who can take our sin and transform it and make it a part of his story, I just think is amazing. We serve a truly awesome God. And if we don't teach the power of God's redemption, of his cleansing, of how he can sanctify whatever we bring before him. We lose something in the beauty of our sexuality. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the adulterers, nor the adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. He's very clear, this is you. He's speaking to the church, you were this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As we move towards leading a church into sexual integrity and sexual health, we do not have to be perfect people. Our God has that handled. He is a perfect God. We need to be people of integrity, people who are transparent, people who are open about our struggle, people who have a vision that we are striving toward that allows what's unhealthy to just kind of fall to the side. People who are boundaried and, and keeping it within the task as much as we can and keeping it disciplined, but people who are falling at the feet of God regularly. Paul says that there is a greater damage that comes from this sin, but it is no greater sin for God to heal, for him to restore, for him to redeem people from. And I'm so grateful for a God that presents, that gives me something that is well worth striving toward and looks at me and says, now grow up in it. And the way you do that is by pursuing my heart. Father God, I truly thank you for who you are. You're an amazing God that you've given us such a gift. And I'm so saddened at how the enemy just tears at it and takes something of great beauty and is able to warp it into something that becomes such a weapon and such a toxin. 
I'm thankful for your grace, for your mercy, that it is your desire to help us to sanctify, to help us to clean it. May you always lead us in that process. May our hearts be always open to you. And may we begin to move toward that time that we can be open and transparent and honest with each other, that the enemy doesn't have the chance to step in, that we call each other to a life of discipleship and pursuing the beauty that you have given. You love us so much. Help us to love you even more. In your precious name we pray.